Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to speak about a, a topic that's kind of been bubbling away for a little while, and I thought this is a, an opportune moment on Father's Day to be able to speak on this particular topic. But before we get there, one thing that I'm thankful for, I wouldn't say I'm particularly gifted at in the area of fathers, is bad dad jokes. Anyone enjoy a good bad dad joke? A few people. Well, I got a few. They're not mine. But here's a couple for you, just to set the scene here this morning. You've probably heard some of these before. Why do fathers take an extra pair of socks when they go golfing? Any golfers in the room? Hey, I heard it from a few people. It's in case they get a hole in one. Come on, it's good. What do you call a factory that makes okay products? Just okay. A satisfactory. Satisfactory? Okay, all right. What did the janitor say when he jumped out of the closet? Supplies. Supplies. One more, come on. One more. Why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? Because it was too tired. Too tired? All right, they're okay. Good dad jokes. All right. But I do, I do want to tackle and take on and encourage us in this notion of fathers, but from a specific angle. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to jump into the text here in 1 Corinthians, see what the Lord would do. But Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a light, it's a lamp, it's illuminating, it's a, a foundation, it's a two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that you are able and you do use your word. You send it forth with purpose to accomplish all that you desire for the glory of your name. So we pray, Holy Spirit, would you anoint this time in your scriptures? Would you speak to us? Give us ears to say, to hear what you're saying to each and every one of us. Open our eyes and the eyes of our heart to see you more clearly, that we might love you more deeply, we pray. For the glory of your name, King Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 4. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church. It's a, a challenging letter. It's a confronting letter. He's written some introductory remarks to this group of Christian believers. And chapter 4 really, in, in fact in my Bible it's, this section is entitled, The Ministry of Apostles. So he's, he's laid the groundwork, but he wants to really establish his rule and his right to speak into the lives of these people. He's saying, this is the heart with which I am coming. And the whole chapter unpacks and unfolds what we could title loosely, the ministry of apostles. And it's an interesting passage, but I particularly want to focus us on verse 14, just in the interests of time. So he's, he's, he's in, if you like, this, uh, this flow, this passage where he's establishing his credentials, where he's revealing his heart and intent. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Some translations say to, to bring some correction, to bring some discipline, to bring some, some helpful guidance and wisdom. As my beloved children, so I want to admonish you as my children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For before I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, 
And so here's what I'm urging you, be imitators of me. In fact, this is why I'm sending you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in church. Some are arrogant as, oh, we're not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What is it that you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And really the key verse here, the key text, the key thought, back to verse 14, they haven't got the context. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. In fact, the literal phrase is an expression there. It's not countless. It's, it's for though you have 10,000, literally the word in the Greek, you've got 10,000 teachers or guides or caretakers, but you have very few fathers. So let's unpack a little bit about what Paul is trying to get across here to the Corinthians, why it's important, and how we can then glean from that and learn in the environment in which we find ourselves here. See, Paul is establishing his credentials as an apostle, and there's many different paths he could choose to do that. In fact, he does in his different letters. He could talk about his wisdom. He could talk about his calling. He could talk about the anointing and giftings that are upon his... There's there's many different tacks or paths, but he wants to make it clear to the Corinthian church that really his heart in coming is for this primary reason. He says, I'm coming to encourage you as a father. That's how I see myself, not as the great Paul the Apostle, the one who can impart significant wisdom, although he could, the one who can... Pray and anoint and bring spiritual gifts, although certainly that is an area that he encourages them in. But he's saying, I want to make it clear that this is my heart. This is the motivation. This is the essence of what I'm about as I'm writing and as I'm coming to bring you encouragement. I'm coming as a father. And in fact, He unpacks, and this is what I want us to unpack this morning, an issue that was obviously present in the Corinthian church. He said, you have 10,000 teachers. Literally, we might say in our colloquial terms, you've got teachers coming out your ears. There's teachers everywhere. There's information overload. There's not an information shortage. This is not an information issue. In fact, as he unpacks the book, he, he commends many of the teachers. It's not necessarily either that it was bad teaching. He says... There's some good teachers. It's good information, but here's fundamentally what you're missing. Although there's 10,000 instructors and guides and teachers, there is few fathers. That's the contrast, teachers versus fathers. Let's just pause there for a moment and say, well, what is the difference between a teacher and a father? And really, Paul's saying here, there's some things that cannot just be taught, They cannot, like teaching is important and I'm not trying to undermine the importance of teaching. But he's saying I'm coming with more than just teaching. I'm coming with the heart of a father. Because you can't teach this. It can't be taught. It's got to be caught if you want to use that expression. See, for teachers, it's a job description, isn't it? Whereas for fathers, it's a life description. It's not something I do. 
It's something that I am. For teachers, there's a consistency when the job requires it. But for a father, there's a consistency in and out of season, when it's easy, when it's not, when it's pleasant or when there's a necessity, as there was for Paul here, to bring some correction and some discipline. That is hard. That is challenging. But that is the role of a father. And ultimately, for teachers, they raise students. That's the goal, is that people would know as they know. Whereas for fathers, they raise sons and daughters. They raise children. It's not that they would know as they know, but it was that they would live as they live. He's saying what you need is a father. You don't need someone to teach you. You need a father who will come with that kind of a spirit. Not to know but to raise up sons and daughters. Now, obviously, a couple of asides here. Paul is not writing to the Corinthian church and saying we need more physical dads. I mean, maybe that was the case. We don't know. We're not talking about physical fathering here. We're talking about spiritual fathering. In fact, Paul himself, as best we know, he talks about the blessedness of singleness. He was a single man. He knew nothing in terms of what it was, we believe, to have physical children. And yet, clearly here in many other passages, he saw himself as a father. So if you're here this morning thinking, well, I don't have any children, so this precludes me, it doesn't. This is, this is for all of us. The, the second observation I'd make as we unpack this and talk a little bit about what Paul is going after for the ladies in the room, I want to honour publicly and thank the mothers in the room and say that mothers are so important in the kingdom. They are. But we're intentionally this morning looking at fathers. So if you like, it will be in some ways an unbalanced message. And that's not in any way to diminish or underemphasize the importance of mothers. Can I say that and get it out there? Make that clear. But, but what I think is so fascinating in the midst of this letter that Paul writes, the uncomfortable letter, perhaps the most uncomfortable letter that Paul writes, is he's saying, here is really the problem I see in the midst of this church. And, and he deals with a lot of different issues. In fact, if you look from, from cover to cover of this letter, he talks and begins in chapter 1, addressing the quarrels. He's saying you're, just, you're infighting. There's quarrels, there's competition, there's rivalry, there's jealousy, there's people chasing this teacher and, and that teacher. And then he goes on, he talks at the end of chapter 1 about you're people, you're just boasting in yourselves. You're boasting in your prowess. You're insecure rather than at rest and peace. Chapter 3, he talks about this immaturity that was in their midst. He says, the picture he uses is, you're like babies crying out for milk. I mean, babies don't have much of a sense of thinking of others, do they? Is this a convenient time to feed? They just cry, give, give me what I want now. And that's fine when you're babies, but he's saying there should be a path to maturity. You're just like newborn babes. So there was an immaturity in their midst. You go on, chapter 3 talks about a distrust and a lack of submission. There was clearly in chapter 5 a lack of discipline. And in fact, the church had embraced things that were overtly sinful. It's like, even in the world, this doesn't happen. And yet it's happening in your midst. The point is this, there were all these symptomatic problems and issues within the church. And yet Paul, as he writes, he's like, here's what I see as the fundamental foundational issue. It's not the fact that there's immorality, although that's there. It's not the fact that there's um, 
immaturity and, and selfishness, they're all the symptoms, if you like, of this one main issue. It says, I'm coming this way because as I look at the church, there is a profound fatherlessness. There is a profound lack of fathers in your midst. And remember in the passage we just read, he doesn't just say, I'm going to come and be your father. He says, I'm going to come as your father to raise the fathers up. That is my heart and my goal, that you would imitate me. I am a father. I'm sending you Timothy, my son, not so that we can show you how incredible this relationship is that we have, but to show you this model of how to do church where there are fathers, not just teachers. All of these symptomatic issues are symptoms, I believe, so what Paul is saying here, of this profound lack of fathers. There is a fatherlessness in the church. And I would say, not only is that applicable for the Corinthian church, certainly it is applicable for the church of our era, and certainly, even more so, that is a profound reality. And you can see all of those symptoms and more in the society in which we find ourselves living today. There is profound fatherlessness in the families, yes, in the churches, yes, and certainly in society. Now, it's, it's interesting, I've seen a, a, a number of articles that have been produced in certainly this year, probably the last few years as well, kind of identifying some of the trends that have resulted from this uh, societal progression towards the deconstruction of family. Like family is deconstructed, family is, we don't really know, all these traditional roles, they're to be discarded and removed. And many of these articles are calling for there to be an urgent stop. They're, they're ringing the alarm bells, if you like, talking about the damage that is being done in society in general as a result of this deconstructionism. And there's areas we could focus on there, but particularly, I would say, perhaps the top of the list as a result of what we see around us is this lack of fathers, this fatherlessness. It's a particular article, a, a political commentator who writes for Sky News, Daisy is her name, a lady, and uh, she wrote a, an article back in August 23, so a couple of weeks old now, which grabbed my particular attention, and it was about Andrew Tate. Anyone heard that name? Hopefully not one of the young men up the back there. <laughs> Fair enough. That'll become clear why I'm, I'm uh, amused by that. But Andrew Tate was this particular character who rose to prominence really within the last few months. He was a social um, influencer, if that's the correct word. And his fan accounts were raking up billions of views. In fact, as this particular article points out, he had more Google searches in July than Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump combined. Now, probably an aside is, why on earth anybody's looking up Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump? That might be a sermon for another day. Point is, this guy, all of a sudden, he rose to prominence, and he rose very quickly on the back of these horrible, horrific, chauvinistic comments and posts about women. Women are the property of men. Women are this, that, and the other. I won't even mention, certainly not in this setting, half of the things that he said. But what was 
uh, alarming and concerning and picked up by many was not just the fact that he, he was incredibly popular, but that the largest supporter base of his in this rise to, frame, to fame was teenage boys. It was young men from the ages of 12. All of a sudden, they're flocking to this guy and people are thinking, why? What is it about this guy that all of a sudden has a generation of young men following after him? And so this particular article, the title of it that grabbed my attention initially in skynews.com, just a political commentator talking about this rise of Andrew Tate, was this. Why decades of gender demonization have led teenage boys to Andrew Tate? That's a pretty provocative title. I thought I'll have to have a look and read that and see what it is that she has to say. And this is the essence. She writes this. Tate's views are abhorrent, but it's hardly surprising young men are gravitating towards him when society has spent decades demonizing masculinity and blaming all of society's ills on their gender. She then goes on in this article and talks about this pandemic throughout elite Melbourne schools that have reported these huge spikes in sexually explicit incidents, particularly involving male teenagers. In fact, interestingly enough, this last week, Knox Grammar, Sydney schools, not just Melbourne, was all over the press for exactly this issue. She goes on after you know, detailing some of these incidents, and it's not just here, it's other parts of the world as well. She says, the adolescent male obsession with Tate is the logical outcome of feminist ideologies in academia, politics and other cultural institutions browbeating boys into a state of crushing resentment. Now, I'm not saying that we need to agree with this. I'm just raising it as an interesting perspective. She mentions one particular college in Victoria last year where all the male students, you might have seen this, were forced to stand up and apologise to all the other girls for the behaviours of their gender. So this was during an assembly and it was endorsed and authorised by Victoria's new Respectful Relationships Program. This was her conclusion. This is really what she wanted to raise. She said, It's bizarre to see those who've championed this approach despairing over the Andrew Tate fixation and racking their brains as to what went wrong. Somebody hand them a mirror. As I said, I need to agree. I'm just saying that's her point. Now, in the midst of what was undoubtedly a provocative article, there was one line in particular that grabbed my attention, and I raise all of that for this. She says this, Given the disdain for men and boys that's permeated popular culture for the past several years, and, grab this, the lack of traditionally masculine role models, it's hardly surprising adolescent boys are gravi- gravitating towards this uber-macho Tate. Now, listen to that. That just grabbed me and arrested something in my heart. Here's what really is being promoted. She's saying, as probably all of us would agree, we have a problem. It's not just the the younger generation, but we have an issue that is increasingly evident all around us. We have a generation that is in a crisis situation. And here's what she's calling out, not me, In the midst of it all, this is the issue. There is a profound fatherlessness. Profound fatherlessness. Where are the male role models? Where are the men standing up and saying, this is what it should look like? And every man who does is shot down and reduced to rubble. All of society's ills placed upon their feet. Now, 
all of us would say we're not trying to promote some sort of an Andrew Tate masculinity. But what I'm saying is there is a profound lack in the midst of the society and the church and even in the homes on each and every level in terms of this issue of a fatherlessness. You know, God is a father. And so I think that this attack on good and wholesome and particularly in our context, godly men, it's not just societal, it's spiritual. If we can erase that reality, reduce it to nothing, then we reduce an aspect of the very Father, God himself. See, isn't this fascinating? This is not Paul to the Corinthian church. This is secular media calling out, we have a problem. There's a problem of fatherlessness, and we need the Father's to arise. The thing they need the most is fathers. And the one thing that is missing the most is fathers. So how is it that we can recover? Well, I love Paul's response. He's like, this is the issue. And so here's the solution. I'm coming. And I'm coming myself. And I'm coming as a father. And I'm bringing my, and I'm, I'm going to raise up. And I'm going to call the fathers and the men in your midst, to stand up and to be counted. That's Paul's response to the Corinthians. He said, that's, that's the whole reason that I'm coming, not to teach, but I'm coming as a father. And so I would aim and intend and love to stir our hearts. How do we recover that in the homes? How do we recover that in the churches? How do we recover that in society? There's a tendency, isn't there, to sit back and lament, to find someone else to blame. Well, it's all the, the woke lefties. It's all these strange ideal. It's, it's, it's this person and that person. Anything that removes for us a sense of responsibility for what we're actually called to do in the midst. We angrily reach for the keyboard to fire off a few choice missiles rather than to use an old cliche, becoming the change that the world so desperately needs to see. That's what the world needs to see. See, so often we get caught up in all the fighting against that we forget what it is we're fighting for. And there's no more wonderful, glorious picture. It's there from the beginning of the Bible to the end than this gift of family, of godly masculinity, of godly femininity too, of this gift of the family unit. And obviously, particularly today, we're talking about masculinity. So I want to give us one example just to hopefully encourage us in this space of standing up and making a difference. This is a true story. It happened over in the US. And I'll just kind of read the, the news report and bring out a few things here. But it says this, on Thursday, September 16, 2021, just a couple of weeks into a school year, violence and fights had broken out at Southwood High School in Louisiana. Now, this particular area of the US, there'd been a huge uptick in violence and crime in the recent months, a trend that the experts blamed on socioeconomic issues made worse by the lingering Pandemic, So it's a difficult environment. All of a sudden, this school is having this huge issue with gangs, <clears throat> with violence. There was dozens of students and staff assaulted, beaten, 
including the assistant principal and other staff members, 23 students were arrested and placed in police custody. So we're not talking about some little fringe fighting. Like the whole campus was locked down, shut down, emergency meetings held with principals, parents, authorities, trying to determine what on earth we do in the midst of that. And they get this. I just love this bit. It says, A group of dads sprang into action, forming a squad of 40 fathers from the community. They called themselves Dads on Duty. (laughs) Isn't that great? It's just corny and... Dads on duty, they began patrolling the campus, greeting students in the morning, encouraging the kids, loving the kids, helping maintain a positive environment. Grab this. From the moment they arrived, there was not a single incident again on the campus. The violence and the gang battles stopped completely. This is from the kids. The kids say, well, the school has been happy and you can feel it, said one student. Another told Washington Post, they can interact with all the kids like we're, they interact with all the kids like we're their own children. I immediately feel a form of safety. It's not the role of the dad, isn't it? To protect and to provide. We stopped fighting. People just started going to class. One of the dads when asked about the strategy, he said that other than a broad selection of bad dad jokes, <laughs> we just come armed with love. That's it. We just come to love the kids. As the story goes, it says the city's mayor, Adrian Perkins, turned up at the school for a dad's on duty shift. He was so impressed by the impact, he said, we want to introduce something like this in every school in the county. He then went on and he even declared October 26th of last year as dad's on duty day in the city. Dad's on duty day. Now, the thing I love about that story was that many of these people weren't even dads of the kids in the school. These weren't necessarily their children. So it's just a group of fathers who said, not on our watch. Society is going crazy. It's upside down. It's backwards. But we're not going to withdraw and build walls. We're going to stand in the midst as the men and the husbands and the fathers that God has called us to be. Everything inside, he pushes us to just withdraw. Find someone else to blame. But everything in the gospel, it compels us to engage. To take responsibility, not on my watch. I'm stepping into the midst of that. That's what Paul's saying, isn't it? There's profound fatherness. So I'm coming. Dad's on duty. I got the badge. I'm stepping into the midst with that passion to raise up other fathers that we would see the change that so desperately we need. See, what if we stopped orphaning people and places around us? What if we started loving, hearing the statistics, seeing the brokenness, recognizing that the time is critical and allowing something to rise up in our hearts that says, not on my watch. I'm clocking on. Dad's on duty is in the house. What kind of a difference would that make to families? What kind of a difference would that make just to us, just in our community, just here, let alone in the church and the society? What if we as a church, if that could be our response, rather than just placards, keyboard warriors, it's open arms, and that the world would see us, and they're like, but this is what we're missing. This is what we're missing. The secular media is calling this fatherlessness, but in the church, there is a church of fathers. 
And they know how to be healthy role models. They know how to love. They know how to be the change. I want us to pray. I don't know if there's Beth or Adam who can come forward. So, Lord, we just want to come before you. We want to acknowledge and admit our need for your grace. We thank you for the great witness of the Apostle Paul, this passage that we've read, as he sees the issues around him. And he says, I'm, I'm stepping in. This is my moment. I'm not here to stay at a distance and to build walls and to throw grenades I'm coming in the midst because what I can see is this profound lack of what's needed, which is the love and the correction and the discipline of a father. And Lord, I pray that for each and every man, but not just every man, for all of us, Lord, that there would be some kind of a spark that you start in our hearts to pray for and to become the very thing that the world is desperately in need of. Godly men and godly women who reveal the greatness of your heart. It's God who came to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captives, to release purpose and identity and hope in the midst of hopelessness. I pray for all of us, particularly the dads, that regardless of what has gone on before, regardless of what's happening now, whether things are going well, whether there's just brokenness all around us, that there'd be that capacity to show up, to put on that badge, to clock on in our families, in our church. And in the spaces and spheres of influence that you've placed us in, all over this, dads on duty. What a privilege, what a high call that is. Pray that in Jesus' name.